Section 7 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jason Isbell. www.shabamdevelopment.com. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1 by James Boswell. Section 7. In a man whom religious education has secured from licentious indulgences, the passion of love, when once it has seized him, is exceedingly strong. Being unimpaired by dissipation and totally concentrated in one object. This was experienced by Johnson when he became the fervent admirer of Mrs. Porter after her first husband's death. Miss Porter told me that when he was first introduced to her mother, his appearance was very foreboding. He was then lean and lank, so that his immense structure of bones was hideously striking to the eye, and the scars of the scapula were deeply visible. He also wore his hair, which was straight and stiff, and separated behind and he had seemingly convulsive starts and odd gesticulations, which tended to excite at once surprise and ridicule. Mrs. Porter was so much engaged by his conversation that she overlooked all these external disadvantages, and said to her daughter, This is the most sensible man that I ever saw in my life. Though Mrs. Porter was double the age of Johnson, and her person and manner, as described to me by the late Mr. Garrick, were by no means pleasing to others. She must have had a superiority of understanding and talents, as she certainly inspired him with a more than ordinary passion, and she, having signified her willingness to accept of his hand, he went to Litchfield to ask his mother's consent to marriage, which he could not but be conscious was a very imprudent scheme, both on account of their disparity of years and her want of fortune. But Mrs. Johnson knew too well the ardor of her son's temper, and was too tender a parent to oppose his inclinations. I know not for what reason the marriage ceremony was not performed at Birmingham, but a resolution was taken that it should be at Derby for which place the bride and bridegroom set out on a horseback, I suppose in very good humor. But though Mr. Topham Buclerk used archly to mention Johnson's having told him, with much gravity, Sir, it was a love marriage on both sides. I have had from my illustrious friend the following curious account of their journey to church upon the nuptial morn. Ninth of July. Sir, she had read the old romances, and had got into her head the fanatical notion that a woman of spirit should use her lover like a dog. So, sir, at first she told me that I rode too fast, and she could not keep up with me, and when I rode a little slower, she passed me and complained that I lagged behind. I was not to be made the slave of caprice and I resolved to begin as I meant to end. I therefore pushed on briskly till I was fairly out of her sight. The road lay between two hedges, so I was sure she could not miss it, 
and I contrived that she should soon come up on me. When she did, I observed her to be in tears. This, it must be allowed, was a singular beginning of connubial felicity, but there is no doubt that Johnson, though he thus shewed a manly firmness, proved a most affectionate and indulgent husband to the last moment of Mrs. Johnson's life, and in his prayers and meditations we find very remarkable evidence that his regard and fondness for her never ceased, even after her death. He now set up a private academy, for which purpose he hired a large house, well situated near his native city. In the Gentleman's Magazine for 1736, there is the following advertisement. At Ediel, near Litchfield, in Staffordshire, young gentlemen are boarded and taught the Latin and Greek languages by Samuel Johnson. But the only pupils that were put under his care were the celebrated David Garrick and his brother George, and a Mr. Offley, a young gentleman of good fortune who died early. As yet his name had nothing of that celebrity which afterwards commanded the highest attention and respect of mankind. Had such an advertisement appeared after the publication of his London, or his Rambler, or his Dictionary, how would it have burst upon the world? With what eagerness would the great and the wealthy have embraced an opportunity of putting their sons under the learned tuition of Samuel Johnson? The truth, however, is that he was not so well qualified for being a teacher of elements and a conductor in learning by regular graduations as men of inferior powers of mind. His own acquisitions had been made by fits and starts, by violent eruptions into the regions of knowledge, and it could not be expected that his impatience would be subdued, and his impetuosity restrained, so as to fit him for a quiet guide to novices. The art of communicating instruction, of whatever kind, is much to be valued, and I have ever thought that those who devote themselves to this employment and do their duty with diligence and success, are entitled to very high respect from the community, as Johnson himself often maintained. Yet I am of opinion that the greatest abilities are not only not required for this office, but render a man less fit for it. While he acknowledges the justness of Thompson's beautiful remark, delightful task to rear the tender thought and teach the young idea how to shoot. We must consider that this delight is perceptible only by a mind at ease, a mind at once calm and clear, but that a mind gloomy and impetuous like that of Johnson cannot be fixed for any length of time in minute attention, and must be so frequently irritated by unavoidable slowness and error in the advances of scholars as to perform the duty with little pleasure to the teacher and no great advantage to the pupil. Good temper is a most essential requisite in a preceptor. Horace paints the character as bland. Ut pures ulem dant crustula blandi, doctores elementa velent ut discere. 
Johnson was not more satisfied with his situation as the master of an academy than with that of the usher of a school. We need not wonder, therefore, that he did not keep his academy above a year and a half. From Mr. Garrick's account, he did not appear to have been profoundly reverenced by his pupils. His oddities of manner and uncouth gesticulations could not but be the subject of merriment to them, and in particular the young rogues used to listen at the door of his bedchamber and peep through the keyhole, that they might turn into ridicule his tumultuous and awkward fondness for Mrs. Johnson, whom he used to name by the familiar appellations of Teddy or Tetsy, which, like Betty or Betsy, is provincially used as a contraction for Elizabeth, her Christian name, but which to us seem ludicrous when applied to a woman of her age and appearance. Mr. Garrick described her to be as very fat with her bosom of more than ordinary protuberance, with swelled cheeks of a florid red produced by thick painting and increased by the liberal use of cordials, flaring and fantastic in her dress and affected both in her speech and her general behavior. I have seen Garrick exhibit her by his exquisite talent of mimicry so as to excite the heartiest bursts of laughter, but he, probably, as is the case in all such representations, considerably aggravated the picture. That Johnson well knew the most proper course to be pursued in the instruction of youth is authentically ascertained by the following paper in his own handwriting, given about this period to a relation and now in the possession of Mr. John Nichols. Scheme for the classes of a grammar school. When the introduction or formation of nouns and verbs is perfectly mastered, let them learn. Cordius by Mr. Clark, beginning at the same time to translate out of the introduction, that by this means they may learn the syntax. Then let them proceed to Eremis, with an English translation by the same author. Class two learns Eutropius and Cornelius Nepos, or Justin, with the translation. N.B. The first class gets for their part every morning the rules which they have learned before, and in the afternoon learns the Latin rules of the nouns and verbs. They are examined in the rules which they have learned every Thursday and Saturday. The second class does the same whilst they are in Eutropius. Afterwards their part is in the irregular nouns and verbs and in the rules for making and scanning verses. They are examined as the first. Class 3. Ovid's Metamorphosis in the morning and Caesar's Commentaries in the afternoon. Practice in the Latin rules till they are perfect in them, afterwards in Mr. Leeds' Greek grammar, examined as before. Afterwards they proceed to Virgil beginning at the same time to write themes and verses, and to learn Greek. 
from thence passing on to Horus, etc., as shall seem most proper. I know not well what books to direct you to, because you have not informed me what study you will apply yourself to. I believe it will be most for your advantage to apply yourself wholly to the language till you go to the university. The Greek authors I think it best for you to read are these. Cebus, Alien, Lucian by Leeds, Xenophon, Homer, Therocides, and Euripides. Thus you will be tolerably skilled in all the dialects, beginning with the Attic, to which the rest must be referred. In the study of Latin, it is proper not to read the latter authors, till you are well versed in those of the purest ages, as Terence, Tully, Caesar, Sollust, Nepos, Valius, Patricolus, Virgil, Horace, Phaedrus. The greatest and most necessary task still remains, to attain a habit of expression without which knowledge is of little use. This is necessary in Latin and most necessary in English, and can only be acquired by a daily imitation of the best and correctest authors. Sam Johnson While Johnson kept his academy, there can be no doubt that he was insensibly furnishing his mind with various knowledge. But I have not discovered that he wrote anything except a great part of his tragedy of Irene. Mr. Peter Garrick, the elder brother of David, told me that he remembered Johnson's borrowing the Turkish history of him in order to form his play from it. When he had finished some part of it, he read what he had done to Mr. Walmsley, who objected to his having already brought his heroine into great distress, and asked him, How can you possibly contrive to plunge her into deeper calamity? Johnson, in sly allusion to the supposed oppressive proceedings of the court of which Mr. Walmsley was register, replied, Sir, I can put her into the spiritual court. Mr. Walmsley, however, was well pleased with this proof of Johnson's ability as a dramatic writer, and advised him to finish the tragedy and produce it on the stage. Johnson now thought of trying his fortune in London, the great field of genius and exertion, where talents of every kind have the fullest scope and the highest encouragement. It is a memorable circumstance that his pupil, David Garrick, went thither at the same time, with intention to complete his education and follow the profession of the law, from which he was soon diverted by his decided preference for the stage. Note, both of them used to talk pleasantly of this their first journey to London, Garrick evidently meeting to embellish a little, said one day in my hearing, we rode and tied and the Bishop of Killaloe informed me that another time, when Johnson and Garrick were dining together in a pretty large company, Johnson humorously ascertained the chronology of something, expressed himself thus. That was the year when I came to London with two pence, half-penny in my pocket. Garrick, overhearing him, exclaimed, Eh? What do you say? 
with two pence half penny in your pocket, Johnson? Why, yes, when I came with two pence half penny in my pocket, and thou, Davy, with three pence in thine. End of note. This joint expedition of those two eminent men to the metropolis was many years afterwards noticed in the allegorical poem on Shakespeare's Mulberry Tree by Mr. Lovabond, the ingenious author of The Tears of Old May Day. They were recommended to Mr. Colson, an eminent mathematician and master of the academy, by the following letter from Mr. Walmsley. To the Reverend Mr. Colson, Litchfield, March 2, 1737. Dear Sir, I have the favor of yours, and am extremely obliged to you, but I cannot say I had a greater affection for you upon it than I had before being long since so much endeared to you, as well by an early friendship as by your many excellent and valuable qualifications, and had I a son of my own, it would be my ambition, instead of sending him to the university, to dispose of him as this young gentleman is. He and another neighbor of mine, one Mr. Samuel Johnson, set out this morning for London together. Davy Garrick is to be with you early the next week, and Mr. Johnson to try his fate with a tragedy, and to see to get himself employed in some translation, either from the Latin or the French. Johnson is a very good scholar and poet, and I have great hopes will turn out a fine tragedy writer. If it should any way lie in your way, Doubt not, but you would be ready to recommend and assist your countrymen. G. Walmsley End of Section 7